Good morning. My name is Nicole Starr. I'm a member here along with my family. Our sermon passage for today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 1 through 23. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancrié, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplinatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus, greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nicole. Oh, that's not going to work. We're good, Nate. Was that me? Or <laughs> Thank you, Nicole, for that reading of all those great Greek names. If, I, if only I can pronounce them as well as you did. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the names of these men and these women who long ago preceded us in the journey of life, and what a legacy they left us. We pray that you'll grant to us, Lord, similar faith that we too 
may share with you in a time of testing, a time of rebuke and pressure and your name's sake. Until you see fit to remove us, Lord, keep us at the work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I got a text this morning from a friend of mine at a church down in Scottsdale, and he said, I hope things go really well. I'll be praying for you, Phil. And I said, thanks. One thing's for sure, I will be supporting the Kleenex Corporation this morning. And uh, <laughs> so Rhoda prepared me well. Well, I thought of an analogy for this passage this morning, and uh, I, I just... It's been great for me to think through it and study through it this week, but I can imagine, you know, all scripture is inspired. God gave, and if you will imagine, uh, Paul a great cave of where he was inspired, and he saw two great veins of gold in that cave. One vein of gold was the vein of deep doctrine, truth. Really, all the doctrines of grace are embedded in the book of Romans, in the first 15 chapters. The second vein, perhaps just as bright and just as deep, was the vein of Christian relationship and friendship. A sense of kindred spirit in the Lord. So this morning we're going to be talking largely about that second vein in that mind. Because we often think of the book of Romans as being the systematic theology of the New Testament. Luther, the father of the Reformation, called it the chief part of the New Testament. It's where the deep doctrines of Christianity are fully explained. But Paul spends about 10% of the whole book in this last chapter, sending greetings and encouragement to the believers in the church at Rome. Why do you think he did that? Well, I think he did it to make sure that we understand that relationships are essential to glorifying God and enjoying him forever. I had a professor in seminary, Steve Brown, that said, the doctrine won't keep you warm at night. We need people. We need people in our lives. We need the church. So here's the scene in this chapter. Here's the context. Paul is in Corinth with a group of nine believers eight men and one woman, getting ready to take offerings from the Philippian church and the other Gentile churches in Macedonia down to help the poor Jewish converts in Jerusalem. Well, that's kind of ironic. We usually think that the Jews are the ones that are able to manage money. That's a stereotype, right? Somewhat true. But here you have the relatively poor converts up in Macedonia and in the church of Philippi sending funds to help the poorer Jewish converts in Jerusalem. And he's writing to a group of 24 Christians in Rome, 17 men and 7 women. 33 names he mentioned in all. As well as two unnamed women, the mother of Rufus and the sister of Nereus and several unnamed brethren, several unnamed brothers. This is quite a list of people that he knew there. Now, I, I tried to uh, ascertain how old Paul would have been when he wrote this letter. This letter was written at roughly 59, 60 AD. So Paul was probably around 60 plus years old. And I think of my memory, and I think, well, Paul was doing pretty good. Just to have remembered that many people. Because he had not yet even visited Rome. 
These are people he had known from his travels throughout the, throughout the Roman Empire, though, from his other contexts. And this passage has three distinct divisions. A greeting to the brothers and sisters at Rome, a brief warning about false teachers and divisions in the church, and a greeting from the brothers and sisters who were with Paul at the church in Corinth. A fascinating thing about this chapter, maybe one of the most fascinating passages in the entire Bible, is what it tells us about the great apostle Paul. Here we see that Paul was intensely interested in people. In fact, to judge by this chapter, Paul can be said to show more interest in people than anyone else in Scripture except for the Lord Jesus. And he begins with kind of a strange event. Paul commends who to take this book, this epistle, to, to the church in Rome? Phoebe. She's the one who carried this letter all the way to Rome, several hundred miles away. The great theologian Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this, Never was there a greater burden carried by such tender hands. The theological history of the church through the centuries was in the manuscript which she brought with her. The Reformation was in that baggage. The blessings of multitudes in our day was carried in those parchments. You just kind of get this mental image of Phoebe carrying the precious book of Romans to that church. Her life was exemplified by service, suffering, and strength. What a woman. Next, Paul greets Priscilla, Prisca for short, and Aquila. Now we know them, so they're not unfamiliar to us, as are some of the, some, some of the others. In the book of Acts, which I'm going to turn to here, in the first part of Acts, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Prisca, Priscilla. And he went to see them. Paul went to see them because he was of the same trade. He was a tent maker, just like Aquila. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And then we jump down to verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, remember Apollos from a few, few weeks ago, was a native of Alexandria. He came to Ephesus. An eloquent man, man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he had been fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But he just knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. You can imagine they invited him to their place. Open, opened, opened, had a meal with them and opened the Bible. What could be better? And getting together with folks. Just breaking bread and talking about God's word. And that's what they did with Apollos. And Apollos was a better man, a more complete preacher for the work that Aquila and Priscilla did. They had a sound knowledge of the gospel, great ability, and outstanding courage. And they were well known to the churches at Rome and elsewhere, judging by what Paul writes. He calls them his fellow workers, adding that they risked their necks for him. Other versions say they risked their lives for him. And then he says, all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Faithful, Fearless, 
They love fellowship. Wouldn't you like to have friends who'd risk their necks for you? Just think a minute. How many people do you know that will lay down their lives for you? That's the greatest form of love that we know. That's the friendship that Paul had with Priscilla and Aquila. And this is just incidental in my study this week. Of the six times their names are mentioned, four times Priscilla's name is put first, which indicates she likely had the gift of teaching rather than her husband. Then we come to Eponidas, whom Paul mentions next. Paul says he was his dear friend. Just as an aside, think for a moment, how many dear friends do you have in Christ? Can you list them on one hand? Two hand? Take your socks off? <laughs> Both feet? How many friends do you have? Lepanidus was a dear friend. And Paul says he was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. So you imagine this entire expanse of, of what we call the Roman Empire and, and Turkey and Greece. And Eponidas was the first convert. Paul was the first to evangelize Asia. So we can, we can connect the dots there and think that Paul had led Eponidas to Christ. What a bond of friendship they must have had. It's no wonder Paul didn't forget him. I see some of the children here, some of the young people that have been baptized recently. I will never forget them. Mary. There are many Marys in the New Testament. I mean, there's no reason to associate this Mary with any of them. Probably it was another Mary. And Paul says that Mary worked very hard for you, which means that she was living in Rome, working for the church folks at Rome. He'd probably been told about her by Aquila and Priscilla. Remember, they came from Italy. Literally, Paul's words mean Mary the toiler. She had no title. She was just a hard worker for Christ's bride, the church. Now, that's not a bad epitaph. I'm trying to think of a name. Someone's not here. Steve was a hard worker for Christ. That's good enough. That was Mary. Then Andronicus and Junius, Paul says four things about these two people. He says they were his relatives. They were probably Jews. That they had been imprisoned with him. Just take a second. If you were thrown into jail for your faith and your cellmates were fellow Christians, how long would it take for you to adopt them as family? How close would you grow to them? Very, very, very close. That's how close he was to Andronicus and Junius. He says they were outstanding among the apostles. You take the apostles and they were right there in terms of their dedication to God. And then he says they were in Christ before he was. Again, another couple converted before him. It's likelier that as, the, as earlier converts than Paul, they knew about his bad reputation like Shelton was talking about 
the things that we consider when it comes to our personal judgment, there's no question in my mind that Paul thought about what they must have thought about him before he was converted and how much they loved him and accepted him in spite of his hateful actions. Then Ampliatus was a common slave name. There's something remarkable in this chapter that I thought a lot about this week, and that was there were, there were literally no distinctions in terms of honor and love and admiration, whether a person was rich or poor, male, female, slave, free. There weren't any distinctions. God doesn't make distinctions between us, thankfully. And we shouldn't in the church either. Then he says, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Very, very likely, he was the grandson of King Herod the Great. And if that's true, it means that even the royal household had a number of Christian servants working in it. And slaves who, ex- who exercised great influence on the leaders of Rome. Even to the emperor himself. And this is supported by the fact that Paul mentions his relative Herodion in connection with these servants. And you can see from his name that this man had connections with the family of Herod. Next we get to yet another band of hard-working ladies in the church, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Paul said, greet these women who work hard in the Lord. They were probably sisters. What does it mean to work hard in the Lord? What would that mean for you? if you were working hard in the Lord. Think about it. Then he says, Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. You notice how many times Paul's emphasizing working hard in the Lord? It seems as if the women did most of the work in the church back then. Amazingly, not much has changed. (laughs) Thank God that he gave us women who know how to toil and work and remind remind us of what our task on earth is all about. And then next in verse 13, we come to a real love story. We have Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who had been a mother to Paul. I think for a minute, do you have anyone in your life that's been a mother figure to you besides your biological mom? I can think of a few. But Paul says, she was like a mother to me. There seems to be little doubt that Rufus, along with his brother Alexander, were mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. That they were sons of Simon of Cyrene. Remember him? The Roman soldiers grabbed a passing stranger (laughs) And they said, you carry this cross for this convict here. His name is Jesus. That was Simon of Cyrene, a Jew coming into the city for Passover. He was from North Africa, and he evidently had little or no interest in Christ until he was forced to carry that cross. How many of us don't have an encounter with Christ until we're forced to carry that cross, to be confronted with this cross. And though we don't know the details, it's evident 
that he was present on the day of Pentecost. Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? Well, he had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And they both became outstanding men in the Christian community. There's a Rufus here in Rome, who's very well known, and Paul sends his greetings to him and mentions the motherly love of Rufus's mom. She must have been quite a woman, a spouse, quite a mom. Then in verse 14, we find what well could have been a group of Christian businessmen, a syncretist, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Now Paul mentions them. Another aside, wouldn't it be great if you knew everyone in the church by name? I gave Fernando, or Fernando, the church director, he said, this is wonderful, I can see people's faces and names. So give Fernando a few weeks to, to get all the names of the church folks here. Greet Philologus in verse 15, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Strange phrase for us. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Well, we in the West, I studied a little bit this week about that holy kiss uh, there in, in a time of pandemic. We, we kind of do the elbow or <laughs> knee. But uh, we in the West, being the uptight folks that we are by nature, we have replaced the holy kiss with a hearty handshake. You know, last week, and I, this has probably nothing to do with the sermon, but maybe it does, but last week when Mike Kelly was here, Mike's a hugger, and he came up to me, and I'm not a hugger, and Mike gave me a bear hug, cheek to cheek, beard to beard, and uh, I thought about it during this week, and I thought, you know what? That was awesome. I feel that much closer to Mike. Fernando's already warned me he's a hugger. Right? <laughs> there is some there you go. There is something special about the human touch, isn't there? It's hard to hold a grudge against someone who gives you a holy hug, holy kiss. You almost can't do it. Try it. Try it with your spouse. You've had a fight, a disagreement. You grab her by the hand, give her a kiss, give her a hug. You cannot hold a grudge. Try it. Well, don't try it today. But maybe put it in your pocket for future reference. But there's a reason why Paul says greet one another with a holy kiss. Why we do a, why we do a, a passing of the peace, a greeting. There's something about human contact that we need. But when we look back over this chapter, we begin to get a sense of how close these people were to Paul. How he cherished his friendships in the church. Many of them were hundreds of miles away, but he loved them still, and you can't imagine that he didn't pray for them every day. I know some of you have the habit of having a list of people that you pray for every day. It's a great discipline. Even to download the directory of the church, to put the names in your every day, pray for a few people in the church. He calls them beloved. Here's another one for you. When's the last time you told someone here that you love them and meant it? 
another aside. I have a, I did a Bible study maybe three, well, no, it must have been seven or eight years ago in Scottsdale, and we went through Philippians, and I, I told the guys, I said, you know, it's really a, be a good thing if we just told each other how much we loved each other, every once, this group of guys, every once in a while. And this morning I get a text from him saying, I hope things go well. I-L-Y. I love you. And I thought, you know, that... It's good. So I said, I love you too. So practice, we should practice telling each other how much we love each other. Paul certainly did. He praised them for their faithful service to both him and one another and for their labor in the Lord. Work is easier when you work together, right? Do you love other Christians like Paul did? Especially people who aren't like you? There are a lot of people that aren't like me. There are a lot of people that aren't like you. And God's put us together in this quilt of humanity that we call the church. And we're called to love each other. Some of us are studious and love to study doctrine. We'd be reading all day if we could. And we get really good at doctrine. I thought about Will Sprague, how much I miss Will's deep love of doctrine. Some of us have a deep love of liturgy. Some of us are just excellent at hospitality. Others love fellowship. So we're all a little bit different as far as our gifting, and it all works out just right. Well, how did Paul come to know and love so many Christians? And how did he remember them all? Because he was thinking about them continually. He thought about them rather than himself. I think of how many times I am self-absorbed with the world of Phil and Philville and how many hours a day I dwell on my own woes and needs and wants. How often do I think and pray for people in my church, in my congregation? So this is a wake-up call for me. He was careful as I mentioned a few weeks ago, to honor his fellow pastor, Apollos. Remember? He said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. It's that kind of a spirit, a spirit that appreciates and values the work of other Christians. Lift them up, even more than yourself. That flowed through Paul's writings. We need to be like him in this. We need to think about other people much more than we do, instead of thinking of ourselves so much. Try making a list of people who have done something for you to bring you closer to Christ, or whom God has used you to bless. Write down what they did and begin to thank God for them. If you can't think of anybody, start serving people. It's a fast way to get to know them, and they'll add you to their list of people not to be forgotten. Well, in verse 17, Paul takes a little bit of a detour because he knows that all churches have particular problems. All saints has its particular problems. Every church does. It's just like children in a family. I had a pastor buddy who said a a church is like a child with a low-grade temperature. You never know when it's going to spike. And and there's, there's some truth to that because we're just people. 
Paul warned and cautioned against division. He speaks of those who cause divisions. Not so much people that come into the church with heresy or introducing a heresy, but those who divide the church into factions that will be loyal to them. All too often, these are people who show up in a congregation suddenly, usually from another church where they've also caused trouble. Though they may give no indication of that when they come, they're knowledgeable. They usually have considerable abilities. They're leaders in the sense that they have enthusiasm and get people to follow them easily. And if you want to get a job working in a church or teaching, all you have to do is show ability and energy and you will be put to work. Too often these new teachers begin to push a particular point of view or a particular doctrine to the exclusion of other equally important truths. They're critical of people who don't see the things the way that they do. And they push their personal concerns. When everyone does not go their way, and not all people will, because God has some in every church who are not so easily taken in, these unbalanced and divisive teachers that Paul talks about pull most of their followers away and start another fellowship. And that fellowship is always presented as being more biblical, more faithful, truer. Out of curiosity, I googled Church of God. Now that would seem to be the truest church, right? The Church of God. And there are 27 distinct Church of God institutions. So, so much for that good idea. You think of, think of yourself. Think how often and how easy it is to leave a church because you don't get your way or I don't get my way. Well, Paul warns that division is not God's way. And then suddenly he moves out of the natural realm into the realm of the spiritual, predicting that for these Roman Christians and for us too, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Comes directly out of Genesis 3. This short and unexpected sentence immediately lifts what he's been saying from merely human to a supernatural level. Paul shifts gears here, and he reminds us that our world is secular and materialistic. It considers as real only what it can see or touch or measure. For those people out there who don't know God, our secular humanist world out there, it's a closed system. God is eliminated. But he says, justice soon. Now in the last section of this chapter, we have a greeting from Paul and the members of the church at Corinth to the Roman Christians. Picture this setting here. <clears throat> They're at the home of Gaius, probably a relatively well-to-do fellow, gracious, congenial, generous, a host of the entire city. He was mentioned in 1 Corinthians. So Gaius opened his house to the entire Christian community. So here is Paul. You can picture him gathered with his friends. And curiously, Tertius is mentioned. Now, according to my research this week, uh, it was common to name slaves by number, not by name. So you can imagine a, a primus and a secundus and a tertius and a quartus and a whatever the f- fifth is. 
Well, Tertius would have been the third. So you have a slave that Paul's in. So Paul entrusted a, a imagine a, a, a lady to take the book to Rome. He entrusted a servant to be the scribe for the most important, arguably the most important, one of the most important books in the entire Bible. So you have Tertius writing down this letter. And he even allows Tertius to insert his own greeting as a form of respect to Tertius. And the others that are gathered around listening to Paul as he dictates this letter, sitting at the foot of the great apostle. Now with Paul, of course, is who? Timothy, whom we know so well from the two letters that Paul addressed to him specifically. Paul spoke of him always in the highest terms. His beloved son in the faith, who would stay with him so long and persisted with him so long and remained faithful to the end. What a friend. The very last letter Paul wrote from his prison cell in Rome was to who? Timothy. Paul also mentions Lucius, Jason, Sosipater. They were fellow Jews. And then Erastus, the director of public works in the city of Corinth. It's interesting they put this man's vocation in there. You can see how the gospel penetrated every level of society. Slaves, public officials, consulates general, leaders of the empire, all sharing an equal ground of fellowship in the church of Jesus Christ. All class distinctions disappeared within the church. And that's what happens when the church works right. Finally, Quartus, probably Tertius' younger brother, sends his greetings. Four things mark these people, this church at Corinth. First, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. God's work never stops. Second, they believe that they were engaged in a real spiritual warfare that never ended until they left this life. So they kept on fighting. Not one of these people, man or woman, was a quitter. You probably had this over your... At one time he played sports. I did when I played football in high school. It said, quitters never win, and winners never quit. As Christians, we never quit. They didn't. Thirdly, they believe that there is no need for rest and leisure. They, they believe that there is a need for rest and leisure at times, R&R, but only to be restored to go back into the battle. Take a time out. You're going back in. They never envisaged retiring and enjoying themselves for the remaining years of their lives. There was too much work to do. And isn't that today still true? Isn't there just too much work to do to retire? Don't throw anything at me. I think all the years of my life, I thought, man, if I could just get to 50 or 60 and retire, and now I'm 70, I'm thinking, oh, wow. Finally, they understood that the gifts of the Holy Spirit among them opened up a ministry for every single believer. Now, as I look out here, every one of you has a special ministry that God has given you. You may not know what it is yet, but you have it. God has gifted, has entrusted, has inspirited you with that gift with that ability. Every Christian has a ministry. Christianity is 
a participant sport. Great Ray Steadman said, God has not brought us to a picnic ground, he's brought us to a battleground. Well, as I studied in closing, as I studied this passage this week, I thought of some of the people that I've known and loved in my Christian journey. I did some reflecting. One particular man I thought of, friend, was a pastor that we had in Oregon, and it really hit me really hard um, because I did not leave that church well. I left it bad. I, uh, I love this guy. He was responsible for introducing me to the doctrines of grace, both by his teaching and by his life. He was a fine man. But we left, there's some petty reason I can't even remember, and I didn't even have the decency to call him and tell him we were leaving. That's what a coward I am. Just left, found another church that was better, truer, what a mistake. Well, I think I might have mentioned this to you, but I think maybe a month or so ago, I was looking for some sermon material, and I thought, and his name is Dale, so I thought, I'm going to take a look at Bear Creek Church in Oregon and see what Dale's been up to, find some recent sermons of his. And I went to the website, and he, his name was not on the website. And I thought, well, that's strange. They wouldn't have fired him. What happened to him? Did he take another church? And I did some digging, and he had a Facebook page. I don't go to Facebook normally, but I did to find Dale, Pastor Dale, and he was there. And over the last uh, 30 years or so, that since we left that church, he's gone through kidney cancer, prostate cancer, and now has ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, that slow-wasting death. That's probably one of the worst ways a person can go out of this world. So I emailed him on his, and his, on the Facebook said, hey, I'd, I'd love to send you an email. I'd love to contact you, Dale. And a few weeks ago, I got an email back from him saying, because I didn't know if he was still alive or not. He emailed me back saying, hey, this is my email, Dale, Pastor Dale. So I wrote him an email apologizing for the way I had left that church, letting him know how much I appreciated him as a man and as a pastor and as a dad. And that he'd been a real, a real Paul figure to me. And I will always admire him. And how God used him, excuse me, I'm sorry, to change the trajectory of my whole life I would not be in ministry today if it had not been for Dale. I got an email back just a few days ago from Dale. He said something to the effect of, Dear Phil, I never thought you left the church badly. I wondered where you went. We loved having you at Bear Creek. We missed you leaving. So good to hear from you. Your letter was encouraging to me and my whole family. Finally, I thought all saints and how much God has blessed me by the friendships he's given me among you. Those of you who are online and those here. We had planned initially to retire, hit that white ball around the green spaces. 
now a yellow ball on a court, ease into a life of retirement after a difficult church split at the last church we were at. But God had different plans. I'm so glad he did. I can't express how grateful I am for each of you. Men and women and children that I've gotten to know. And especially the elders and deacons that I've spent so much time with. I have a great hope that the future of all saints will be very bright. And that this church will be a beacon for the gospel for many, many years to come in the Treasure Valley. You know, things are never easy. Change is never easy. We've gone through a lot of change. But as we've seen here in these churches, in this chapter, hopefully, even with difficult change, people can grow closer together, not further apart. Much like the church members that Paul greeted, working hard for the peace and purity of the church because it does take hard work. So finally, I appeal to you, and the best appeal I could find was in Romans chapter 12, and it's this. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Amen.